Ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry. Hi, I'm Adrian. Welcome back to another episode here at Lux Unplugged. In this instance, I get together with Anton Clausen, CEO at Bernard Massard. Bernard Massard is a well-known sparkling wine brand in Luxembourg. Most people outside of the Grand Duchy wouldn't know that the main river in the east of the country, called the Moselle, is surrounded by a myriad of wineries with world-class reputation. An important player not only locally but also internationally, Antoine walks me through the roots of this 100-year-old family business that's adapted and grown substantially over time. Known as Cremant in Luxembourg, the sparkling wine produced by Bernard Massard and distinctly recognisable thanks to its yellow label, is a top-selling product in many key regions, some of which actually were quite surprising to me when discussing this with Antoine. Of course, you might wonder, how is this Luxembourgish winemaker competing with big names such as Champagne, for example? Well, you have to tune in to find out. I'm sure listeners will appreciate all the anecdotes and have to find Bernard Massard over more than a century. Today, this family business produces over 3.5 million bottles a year, which it predominantly exports to a growing number of international markets. But now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Antoine Clausen, CEO at Bernard Masser. Antoine, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. It's our utmost pleasure to have you on the Luxembourg podcast. So we have a very established tradition on this uh, on the show. So before we set the scene or before we actually dive into the core of the topics, the audience and myself, actually, we like to know who we're talking to. So for the context, would you be kind enough to introduce yourself to our audience? Well, uh, my name is Antoine uh, Clausen. I'm uh, Luxembourg, obviously, and I'm uh, a running a wine company in Luxembourg called Bernard Massard. Bernard Massard is a family business that was created 100 years ago, and I'm the fifth generation running the company. Straight to the point. I like that. You, you didn't join the business straight out of university, right? So you made your mark, so to speak, so you kind of gather more experience outside of it. So um, my main interest or my key question to you is, what did you learn, actually? What was your process before you joined the family business? Well, for me, it was important to, to gain some experience in, in other fields. As, uh, as I said at the beginning, it's a, it's a family business. And, and I think it's very important when you, when you join a business like that, that you have some experience since, firstly, elsewhere, and then secondly, abroad. I mean, Luxembourg, you know, when you grow up in Luxembourg, you go to school in Luxembourg, and then you work and die in Luxembourg. So very interesting. So um, I decided to make, you know, my own, my own first step of a career, uh, so I studied abroad first, and then I, I, I went working into the finance industry, uh, which I thought was an obvious choice as a Luxembourger, but then I quickly realized it wasn't made for me. I started in banking, and then I, I switched to, um, to M&A, actually, and I did that for two or three years. And then I came to a point where I said, now I have to take a decision. Do I want to do this forever? Or do I, you know, I was working for PwC, um, it was quite important to, uh, to take Yes, some, some important decisions to say, okay, I want to move up the ladder or, or, or do something else. Um, and then came kind of an opportunity. We are, we are pretty, pretty strong in, in the Belgian market. And uh, at that time, it was around 2010. We switched importers in Belgium and they were looking for someone uh, to take over the brand, to, to rebuild it in Belgium. And, and the importer called me and said, Antoine, do you know someone who would be interesting to do it? I, well, I'm pretty sure he knew who he wanted to have there. But uh, for me, it was quite interesting because it allowed me to join the family business without working here immediately with my parents. So I could do a few years like that in, in, in Brussels, which was pretty nice. 
and before deciding to go, to come back to the to the business in Luxembourg. Now, out of interest, what was it the expectation from your family that at some point you join the business? Well, you know, actually, I, I think they hoped I would come back, or some someone of the family would come back. I have a brother, but from my brother's pretty obvious that he wouldn't join. He decided to become a lawyer. And, and he pursued that path. And for me, there was never pressure, right? So my parents always educated us in a way that they said, do what you want to do. Uh, but if you want to join the business, well, you have to be <laughs> to have the skills or at least the competence to, to, to join us. Uh, but there was no pressure, no. So essentially, are you the only member from your generation now in the business? I am, I am. I have um, one, two, three, four, five, five cousins. <laughs> Five cousins and a brother, and uh, I think they all, all of them liked the company, but no one wanted to join. Well, at the end of the day, it's it's always and it's one of the questions later. But uh, you know, keeping a family business a family business uh, entails also maintaining some some presence from the founding uh, family. So it, it totally makes sense. But yeah, I I have heard stories of other people. You know, either members want to go their own way, or they they happily rejoin to keep the tradition. But uh, going back to Bernard Massar. Um, so as you mentioned in the beginning, it's, uh, it's the business has been around in Luxembourg for 100 years. So it's uh, quite a, a strong uh, performance, uh, uh, given that you know, a lot of business, you know, it's, it's already a challenge to, to maintain them for a few years. Now, 100 years is, is definitely a, an achievement. But for the, again, for context and for people, for the audience outside of Luxembourg, I mean, a lot of people know Bernard Massa in Luxembourg, but just uh, for the benefit of obtaining an, an all-rounder. So how would you describe the history of uh, of this company and uh, yeah just give a bit of a bit of a bit more flavor in that respect well it, it's it's quite an interesting story actually because it's uh, the, the founder obviously was not preneur <laughs> um, but he was he was a guy from from Luxembourg called Jean Bernard and he was actually working in Champagne and during the first world war he decided to come back to Luxembourg and create his own winery and, and why was that because I think it's it's a time where a lot of companies were actually, wine companies were founded. We came out of the First World War. Before the First World War, most of the wines that were produced in Luxembourg were actually exported to Germany. We had a trade agreement with, with Germany allowing us to freely export our wines without uh, paying taxes. So, so they would use Luxembourg wines to make sparkling German wine. Uh, with the end of World War I, uh, Luxembourg was there with wine. They didn't really know what to do with it. And Jean Bernard had the idea of reproducing, reproducing what he had done uh, in Champagne. And, and, and that idea was produced Champagne in Luxembourg, obviously, even though we're not allowed to call it that way, uh, because we're not in Champagne, we're in Luxembourg. He had this idea, but he really didn't really have the money to do it. So what he, what he did, he went to all of his friends, and some of his friends were actually uh, my great-great-grandfather and his brother. Um, the one was a doctor, the other one was a lawyer. But the, the doctor also was uh, passionate about wine and uh, vineyard. He, he had his own uh, domain for many years, dating back to 18, 1856 or something like that. And so he decided to join Jean Bernard in his, in his uh, undertaking, uh, along with another 100 people. So it was actually Jean Bernard who was kind of a you know, crowdfunder for his time, because even today we still have a lot of... Uh, uh, non-family shareholders, uh, which is challenging, but luckily they're they're pretty minorities, so it's it's quite okay. Yeah, so so that's how my family got in. Uh, for the name, just for, for the little story, 
Jean-Bernard married Mrs. Massard, called Anne Massard. And at that time, you know, we came out of the war and it was very posh to have a French-sounding name. Well, Carl Bernard was not very sexy, you know, so, <laughs> so what they did, they put the Bernard and the Massard together and it sounded a little more French. So that's for the beginning of the, of the company. Unfortunately, Jean Bernard died only two years after founding the company in 1923. And that's why my family actually took over. So uh, first, it was my great-great-grandfather. Uh, then came my great-grandfather until the Second World War. He died in '46, to be precise. And that's when my grandfather took over. So uh, Carlo, he was very young. He came back from the war, had no experience. I think he was 22, 23 years old. And um, he had to take over a company that was partially destroyed by war. So we had, in winery, we had the German, no, sorry, the Americans. And on the other side, we had the Germans. So you can imagine how, how the winery looked after, after the war. So this is actually quite an important time of our history because it's a time in the beginning of the 50s where my grandfather decided to sell most of our vineyards. And why did he do that? Uh, because we, we needed money to rebuild the winery. And we decided to switch our business model from being a producer to being what we call a négociant. Uh, négociant is very common in Champagne as well. It's where you buy grapes from other producers and then you produce the wine. So we continued, we still do that. Um, but in the 1980s, when my father joined, we were able to buy back some of the, some of the vineyards that we uh, had sold around our hometown here in Grenmacher. And over the years, we were able to buy back more and more of those vineyards. And, and today... Well, we have much more than that, but we, we own around 40 hectares of vineyards. And you are, just just for the, put things in perspective, so you are the biggest winemaker in Luxembourg now? We are not, <laughs> because we have, um, well, to be a little bit technical, we have three types of producers in Luxembourg. You have the, the small private producer who usually has between six and 12 hectares. Um, so the private producers, you have around 60, 60 in Luxembourg. And then you have a big cooperative. They own more or less half of the vineyards, which represents 650 hectares. Uh, and the entire population is 1,300 hectares, more or less. We are the biggest private-owned uh, wine producer. Uh, and we belong to a third category, which is called, as I said before, the négociant. Although we are a little bit hybrid because we buy grapes from other producers, but at the same time, we own our own vineyards. So, um, yes, in, in terms of ownership, we, we must be one of the biggest in Luxembourg, yeah. And from, actually, from a branding perspective, how, how do people know you? What, what, what differentiates you from, like you said, the two other types? You know, what, what would people know about Namassar? I think the big difference is that we have always had an approach where the brand was very important. So we, we put a lot of marketing into the brand. For smaller producers, they are mostly known because of their wine or because of their friends and, you know, and families and the people around them. I think we, we, we always focused on being a global, not a global brand, but a, yes, one of, the, one of those brands that you remember, which, which is pretty rare in, in, first in Luxembourg, but also when you look at uh, how Luxembourg exports its wines, we are kind of an exception. Most of the wine that's produced is actually consumed locally, and, and, and we, we export 50% of our production. So, so I think that's the main difference. We always put a lot of effort on promoting the brand, maybe more than the appellation, maybe more than the provenance of the, of the, of the wines. Actually, you were just mentioning export, because again, you say it's, it's important to have marketing that, uh, that supports your, your brand. 
And and I would imagine you also, you also have to adapt that to each export market that you you're setting to. And I th- well, and again for the benefit of the audience, uh, when we had an offline conversation, I remember you saying that uh, Finland is one of your biggest, or if not the second biggest after after Luxembourg, which for me was uh, I have to say quite an unexpected name. I mean, not unexpectedly because of they they, they like drinking, but more unexpected in terms of destination. Uh, so no, it's, it's, a, it's a very good thing because, I mean, Finland was certainly not, not on my radar in, in that sense. But how did you just, uh, can you remind me, how did you, how did Bernamassa manage to penetrate that, that market and become so prevalent in that sense? So, so to, to, to go back a little bit in history uh, and to be very... Uh, for the sake of clarity, the, our main export market is Belgium. And that, that goes back to the foundation of the company because the, the founder said, if you want to grow, Luxembourg is too small, so we have to export. So, so what they did, they, they immediately tried to penetrate the Belgian market. And we've been present there for, for almost 100 years. That's why we're also very, very known there uh, today. It represents 30% of our income today. So it's, it's quite, quite a lot. After that comes Finland, absolutely. So Finland is our second export market. We've been there for 28 years, almost 30 years now. And so we joined the market in 1996. And how did it come to that? I mean, that, it's quite funny because it, my, my father tried to, to enter Finland for many years, but he didn't really manage to get in. Uh, and I have the same situation in Sweden now because I tried to get in Sweden, but it's very hard. Why? Both, both markets are pretty similar because it's, something we don't really know here, those markets are state monopolies, meaning that the state is the, is the only one allowed to sell alcohol to private consumers. So it looks like a wine shop, right? But it is state-owned. To get in the, those shops, it's really hard. So you have to have a tender that's specific for your country or your type of product. And then you're in competition with many, many, many producers from around the world. And so, so for Luxembourg, it's potentially impossible to get in. However, in '96, Luxembourg, oh, no, no, Luxembourg wasn't the EU, but Finland joined the EU. And uh, the minister at the time wants to have a product from every wine producing country in their, in their state monopoly shops. And he remembered that he'd met my father. So came out a tender that was really designed for us. I mean, they were looking for a sparkling wine from Luxembourg with a yellow label and a red top. So you can imagine who won. We did. <laughs> and so that's how we got in. Uh, but it was not enough. I mean, getting into market, you know, in, in the first years, we sold like a thousand bottles anyway. Well, we, we were happy because it was a thousand bottles, but it was, it was pretty marginal. And then came a second thing, a coincidence. It's um, uh, Finnair, the, the local airline decided to, to list us on their flights. So we, we were on every flight uh, of Finnair and People, you know, became, received a, a, a little bottle of venom stuff free, and they associated with this with with their holidays. And many of them liked the product, so they went they went to the shops, asked for for the product, and the people said, "Oh yeah, yeah." The shop said, "Yes, here it is." And and we had a, a sympathy factor for our wines, you know. So so there there was some momentum that was created, and then the third effect was that. We had very positive press over there. And, you know, in Luxembourg, when you have a journalist writing about a wine, uh, your sales are not really impacted by it. But uh, in Finland, uh, when, when the right journalists write something about you and it's positive, I think the entire country runs into the shop and tries to, to, to have that wine. And that's exactly what happened to us. 
So we grew and every year we doubled our sales. And today it represents uh, more than 350,000 bottles. So we are, we are in the top 10 most selling products of, of Finland. And we have, for, for the little history as well, we have, we've had many success stories in Finland over the years. And recently our, our new Cuvée, the organic, the organic sparkling wine was elected best sparkling wine of the year by, by a very, uh, very known newspaper. And, uh, and that boosted our sales like crazy. So it's, it's quite, quite fantastic how that, how that little country <laughs> where an even smaller country <laughs> has such a success story. And you were saying for Sweden, which is just a neighboring country, a Nordic country, it's not the same, right? It's not, not the same. People haven't got the same affiliation to it, um, like no. the, the Finns. Absolutely. I, I, you know, we have a lot of Swedes that, that live in Luxembourg and then when they go back to Sweden, they want to find the pros because they liked it. And then, and then I get calls and me emails, and where can we find it? And, and yes, so I, I try to get into that monopoly for, I don't know, five or six years now. And, uh, and we've had many very good contacts and, and, and tastings with the monopoly, but they never know how to, where to put us, you know, in what category to put us. So uh, I always say put us in the sparkling wines with the others. It's okay. We can compete. <laughs> but uh, yes, I think for now we have to, to work, yes, on, on uh, a little bit more on, on, on making them uh, believe in the product. And it's tough. It's challenging. In a wider sense, are you now, is, is your stance more, we are further developing the existing markets or you're really trying to sort of, I mean, organically grow existing markets or you're really trying to expand globally with, uh, like you said, with the yellow label? Yes. Yes, we do. We do. It's, uh, we, 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 we actually try to, to consolidate some of the markets, but some are very mature already. You know, when you're in the top five in Canada, most selling products, it's hard to, to grow. You know, the advantage is we are, we are at the top in Quebec. So, so now we're trying to, uh, to, to go more into Ontario and British Columbia, which is, you know, which are equivalent of, of countries for us, right? So, so uh, if, if we could uh, expand there, that would be fantastic. Other markets that I'm targeting are the US because it's also a very big market, but very, very difficult for us as a Luxembourgish company to enter because no one knows where Luxembourg is. And if they know, they, they know it for our finance industry and, and, and much less for our wine. I suppose in uh, in bigger markets, like you say, like the US or or other ones where Luxembourg seems to be a little bit more remote, for, geographically speaking, I've always wondered how does a company like yours position itself to compete with more established names? Well, you, you mentioned earlier Champagne. I mean, obviously Champagne is the the, the most famous name, but it's it's uh, yeah, it's actually the name of a region. But uh, a lot of people can refer to that because I, I'm not sure actually a lot of people know that Champagne is a region, but they know Champagne is a drink. That you know, where they produce very expensive sparkling wine, but how do you position yourself in that in that sense? That's a very very good question, and it's one of the questions I am asking myself every day. <laughs> yes, you, you talked about Champagne. Champagne is a very interesting case because it's uh, it's probably the most famous brand in the world uh, in, in the drinks industry. Everyone knows Champagne. Everyone knows what Champagne is. Everyone knows that it's magic, that it's expensive, and it's probably good. And so it's very hard to compete against that. The advantage that we have that we are we are the first alternative to Champagne. Uh, we're more affordable. And again, very often I, I don't play so much on the appellation because when I say Cremant in some countries, it's not positive. In Luxembourg, it's very socially accepted that you that Cremant is good and that is I think we, we consume more Cremant in Luxembourg than we do consume Champagne, for instance. Uh, but in other markets, like in France, we talk about Cremant, it's uh, you know it's a bit tough. Uh, 
in Nordic markets, it's okay. But there again, I said in the beginning, uh, again, we position ourselves much more as a brand than an appellation. Competing with others, Champagne, it's very hard to compete with because they're in another price segment. I would, I would say they're in another league. Of course, you do have accessible Champagnes, but it's not really the ones we compete with. The ones we compete with are maybe the French Cremants in a lesser extent, but then uh, mainly the Spanish and Italian sparkling ones. You know, if, if you take a country like Belgium, for instance, um, Cava was very, very popular. I think it was Cava is a Spanish sparkling wine, right? For a very long time, Benamastal was the alternative to Champagne. Uh, when you thought about a sparkling wine that was not Champagne, you would buy Benamastal. Then came the, the Cava, and Cava exploded, and it became much more socially acceptable to drink something that was sparkling and was not Champagne. So it's been a tough competition for us. We tried to, because we were, you know, we were in between seats. We were, uh, we were in between the covers, which is like the cheap stuff, and then in between the champagne stuff that was very expensive. So that, that's tough to find your position there. Again, how did we do it and how did we perform presence marketing-wise in, in newspapers, uh, with influencers, with journalists, with a lot of events where we were, you know, trying to be close to people. And that kind of worked, and especially in Belgium. Uh, for instance, a very good example is during COVID. Uh, what we, we, we had an exceptional growth in many of our export markets. Uh, one of the reasons we, well, how we try to explain it, is that people were looking for something more qualitative, so something you know, better. They wanted to spend more, but not necessarily very, very, very much more. And that's where... You know, we were like, in French, we say valeur refuge. I don't know if you have an equivalent in English, but it's like, it's like, it's like gold. <laughs> you know, it, it's a safe heaven. You, you know the brand? The brand has, has a, uh, it, it procures you some security. And, and there, I think, in the beginning, people bought it because it was a little more expensive. And then they tasted it, they liked it. And that's the second effect. More than marketing, I think the quality of our product is very important uh, because that's the only thing where we can compete on the, on the, on a global level, um, because there are sparkling wines from everywhere. But one thing is to get people the glass in the hand. The other thing is when they drink it, they have to like it. And so we never make compromise on quality. That is something uh, that is very unique for us. We are, I think, very competitive. And when you go to Canada and you go to shops and you ask for sparkling wine for good value, it's crazy, but they would always recommend Bernasa. So that's where we, you know, that's where we try to be very high quality and accessible price. I'm presuming you're still you're producing still using Luxembourgish cost inputs, right? Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those that are not familiar with the Luxembourg input costs, they are a tad higher <laughs> than uh, than Spain's, for instance. But but actually, that that leads me to another uh, question, and uh, you'll forgive me, Anton. Ask two questions at the same time, but. To compete with Spain, but Spain is based in a in a country which is warm. And again, and, and I'm touching slightly upon the the climate change topic because um, I mean, also something we discussed uh, offline. But with um, seasons that are becoming less predictable, and with harvesting becoming more erratic, how do you want to tackle, or how do you see this strategy going forward? Because presumably, that those countries where it's cooler, they will be still be able to produce more. Then I mean it's it's a basic assumption that I'm making. It's it's becoming less and less predictable for winemakers to you know to maintain their volumes at least. But for people you know for regions uh, that are now becoming uh, that are up upcoming, that, like England for instance, where I'm based, 
you've got a lot of people buying up land because it's uh, yeah it's dif- different conditions are be- better but cooler than Spain. So is that something that you, you're looking at? So number one is how is climate change influencing the way you you want to produce your your wine? And two, how do you see that as a is that potentially like a, a competing advantage in the longer term? Climate change has a big effect on how we how we grow, how we produce, how we source our wines. Because as I said before, we we have our own vineyards, but we also buy grapes from other producers, which which allows us to to arbitrate a little bit and, and to be less dependent on on climate influences uh, here in Luxembourg in particular. But um, yes, of course, it's it's a very it's a hot topic, right? It's a, it's a hot topic. I think we have a big chance with climate change that our wines get much riper. Uh, which was not necessarily the case before. But it's more, I think that's more relevant for still wines than for sparkling wines, because sparkling wines, you need less maturity, so you can harvest a little earlier. And depending on where you are, even in Spain, you could, you, you know, if you harvest a little bit earlier, it's still okay. Where they have a, a big problem is with, you know, with, with their red wines. The further north you go, the better uh, it will be suited for, for, for sparkling wine. So climate change helps us now in Luxembourg. I think in the 80s, in the 70s, or, or even further back, it was very hard to produce good wines here. Uh, now, now we have to challenge ourselves to produce wines that are not overripe. You mentioned the, the, um, uh, the fact that England is now producing quite a lot of wines, uh, especially sparkling wines as well. It's, well. When you look at the map, it's, it's not that far in terms of height um, of, of the Champagne area. And you have a similar soil. So Champagne being very, very expensive today, I think many French producers also position themselves in, in the south of England. Uh, I think of a few brands like uh, Pommery, Franquen, uh, and then you have Tétanger, and, and I think even Bollinger who bought quite a lot of land over there uh, because they bring the expertise in, in an area where the land is not as expensive in, as in Champagne and climately pretty, pretty close. Maybe a little more rainy than in Champagne, so that that might be a challenge for them. But uh, it's it's really interesting how how it evolves, and I would say Luxembourg benefits from it very much. I hope that answers your your, your questions correctly because you had two questions in one, and maybe I, I forgot one part. <laughs> yes, that, that answers my my question, and uh, I it, it was difficult to answer, to ask just one question, and uh, so I thought you know could potentially combine it into into one, but yeah, brilliantly uh, answered. So so. Um, but, but given all those inputs, so given all those facts that um, winemakers have to kind of shift around or, or get more land outside of their comfort zone, you will still, and this is one of the biggest things that, one of the big topics that we discussed with other guests that are, that are producers in, in Luxembourg is, again, the, the Made in Luxembourg label is important to them because it's, it, I would imagine it sustains or supports their branding themselves. So Yes. Uh, well, the Made in Luxembourg, I think it's a very... Good tool. It's really important here in the greater area. As soon as you talk big exports far, far away from Luxembourg, it's a little less important. And I regret it. Honestly, I regret it. I'd really love to uh, to have more impact with that. But I think here in Luxembourg, it's very, very important. And, and we are putting in on all the bottles that we have. So and all the communications and, uh, and, and you know, we are very proud to be in Luxembourg and to, and to produce like that. But to answer the other part of your question, I could have grapes from uh, from the other side of the Moselle and still have the made in Luxembourg. I mean, uh, if I buy the gra- if I get the grapes from from the other side of the Moselle, I bring them here and I do the entire production here in Luxembourg. So it's still made in Luxembourg. 
consider consider ArcelorMittal or Bofeding. Huh? I don't know if you talk to Bofeding, but the hop that they produce for their beers doesn't come from Luxembourg. Um, uh, the steel that we use for ArcelorMittal, uh, it's not produced in Luxembourg. The tobacco that you use for Heinz van Nandik cigarettes, it doesn't come from Luxembourg, but it's still made in Luxembourg, right? So it's, that, I think the know-how that we have in, in, in producing the end product uh, is located here and it's really important and, and, uh, and that's what we focus on very much. Do you feel like that the, for instance, is the Luxembourg government still friendly to companies like yours? Our previous guests have said that Luxembourg is not necessarily a, hasn't got a, an industry-friendly policy, and it depends on a lot of other incentives for people to come in and produce in Luxembourg. But do you agree, I'll ask you the question differently, Anton, do you agree it's important to be a Luxembourger to produce stuff in Luxembourg? Not at all. <laughs> no, no, no. We have to track people to Luxembourg. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of federations in Luxembourg. And, and when I travel, I'm probably one of the biggest ambassadors of Luxembourg. So, you know, I talk about Luxembourg all the time. And sometimes I, I do agree with you. I think that politicians are short-minded and that they, they have a, a little bit of lack of vision uh, for our country. Because we have the finance industry and it's it's a cash cow and it works really well, And uh, but you don't have to kill the cow, you know, so that's really important to keep it alive. Uh, but I think you have, like, in everything you do, you have to, to integrate some diver- diversification in, in your industry, in your economy. And recent years have shown that we've a little bit forgotten that to do that in Luxembourg, right? We have, uh, we have some, some bad examples. And I hope that, you know, elections are coming up, so I hope that politicians will, uh, again, focus on that topic again really obvious examples. We had IKEA. We, we didn't have IKEA in Luxembourg, right? They wanted to come to Luxembourg and the mayor of the city at the time, we, who is today the foreign foreign affairs minister, <laughs> he didn't really want to have IKEA in his commune, in his, in his town. So uh, he said no. And IKEA went three kilometers further and, and established in, in Belgium. And now, and now every Luxembourg goes to IKEA in Belgium. So we are we are too small to be to to be like that, you know. I, we have always been open-minded people. We've always been very attractive, uh, and I think we we should not forget that. And, and looking forward, we, we want to attract new new activities, new uh, new businesses, and also industry. I mean, it's not enough to bring in green fine tech, fintech. Sorry, it's it's also important to. Uh, yeah, to have some some more established companies, it gives also credibility to the country when the big name comes to Luxembourg. But do you think it's possible? Is that is that even a prospect? Again, yes, because it is. Luxembourg has got high labor costs. Luxembourg, I mean, there's many other benefits, but um, Luxembourg is. Do, do, do you consider Luxembourg competitive at that level compared to other neighboring countries? Uh, on salaries, it's maybe less competitive than other countries. But when you when you want to establish a company here, you have an objective. Usually, it's not for uh, heavy industry with low low wages. I think you would would go with something uh, that has more added value, and then you have something really interesting. You have a cosmopolitan country where you have also many countries touching the country, people coming from abroad, living abroad, coming to work to Luxembourg. So you have exceptional know-how. You have uh, probably very big people there, and of course, I think you have some some incentives. That could be tax incentives, uh, subsidies, and and very and very stable political environment that would be very interesting to, for a lot of companies. So I think I think we are competitive. Maybe maybe on the financial point of view, again on salaries, it's tough. But when you compare it to France or Belgium, 
wages wages are maybe not as high, but then you have uh, corporate taxes is higher. You have uh, so, so, social security, et cetera, et cetera, that are that are much higher in those countries. So so yeah, uh, we we are competitive. We are competitive. We're very attractive. We are uh, very cosmopolitan again. So so I think uh, Luxembourg is still a good destination, but our politicians need to to push it even more. Or, or be, be coherent with what they say because they want to have companies, but when they come, then local politicians can stop it, and that that's where we we need to find the balance. And and also the left hand has to talk to the right hand. Just one more thing about um, Bernard Massau. So um, again, in summary, so company's been around for a hundred years. Uh, you are the fifth, sixth generation. You said fifth, fifth generation. There's not that many family-run businesses in Luxembourg that are still run by the, especially by Luxembourgers and um, and from the from the founding family. So my question to you, Antoine, is if someone wanted to create their business and, and project themselves in the next hundred years, let's say that way, what's the lessons that that you give them? Yeah, what would be your best your best way to approach it to make it a very you know long-lasting business? It's a very 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 interesting question. This goes beyond the company. The company is one thing, and this, the company show, should, in, in in that perspective, should be the the important thing. How to how to make the company survive? Very often, when you create a company, you work it up, it works well, then you pass it on to the second generation. Second generation is still motivated; they build it up, they build it up. Usually, there are not a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people from the family in, in the second generation. Maybe two, maybe three. You know, the kids. But then comes the third generation. And that's where it gets more difficult. That's when the children have children. Because the further you move down the tree, or up the tree, sorry, uh, the further, the more uh, people you will have that are not connected to the business, who see the business flourishing and they don't really have a link to it. They say, that, but how can we live from that as well? <laughs> and then it becomes challenging, you know, uh, because there, there will be people who, who, who want their share of, of the company. And, uh, and then you will have splits and then possibly it will be sold or people will have to, to uh, uh, make some, some debt to pay out the others. And that's challenging because then you are in a situation where the financial viability of the company is compromised. And it becomes dif- more difficult, <laughs> more difficult with, with the next generation and so on. So I think one of the key factors of success is to try to keep the shareholding as concentrated as possible. Which doesn't mean that uh, every generation should buy out all the others, but at least you should organize. You have you should have a, a governance within the family that allows you to keep everything together. I think that's 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 an important thing for a family business, quite specific. And then, I don't say that it is necessary that someone of the family runs the business. At some points in history, it can very well be that no one is fit to run the company, and then you have to realize that, and then you have to be to be rational and say, okay, there's no one of this generation who can run it. So let's take someone from the outside who will we will control through governance or, or we will be on the board, but not necessarily operational. Luckily, we didn't have to do that yet, but I know a lot of other business, family businesses have done that and very successfully. That's a very difficult part of the family business. You have to separate the emotional part from the rational part. And, you know, it, it, sometimes it's just difficult because... You leave the company, you go home, and you bring the business home. And uh, on the Sunday lunch with the family, you talk about the business because it's part part of the family. So you have to be quite, yes, quite cautious to to 
to keep that balance, that balance uh, uh, upright. And then if someone of the family comes in, I think they need to be aware of what they're doing. They need to have the competence to join the business and they really would need to be motivated by what they do. I'm not saying passionate because passionate is a word you use for everything. Okay, obviously I am passionate about what I'm doing because I love this business and I love wine and I love uh, everything about growing wine and, 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 and consuming and sharing and selling wine. But you have to go into that business and say, okay, I... I want to leave. I want to leave something behind for the next generation, and that's, you know, when I when I plant uh, vineyards, I know I don't plant them for myself. I plant them for for my children. I plant them for my grandkids, and that's something I find exceptional about my business. For self promotion, for for you to have a, an opportunity to promote a little bit your business and to maybe encourage other people outside the family to uh, to become part of the of this journey. What uh, what would you tell any prospective candidates if they wanted to? Uh, be part of the, this exciting company. I think it's it's pretty it's pretty unique because you know I travel a lot for for in the wine world and I see a lot of producers and I see a lot of uh, small producers, big producers, and I think we are we are at the crossways of those different types of companies. Usually, you are either big or very small, and we are everything. We produce three million bottles of sparkling wines a year, but I also produce. 1,200 bottles of a single uh, single winner at Riesling. I do uh, 10 barrels of red wine with my own feet, you know. So um, I think that is what is super interesting in my business, in my company. You have you have that flair of a big company and you have that that fantastic aura of a small domain. Um, and it's very versatile. It's also something you don't have a lot, especially when you're from Luxembourg, it's that we have... A very deep root, deep, very deep roots here in Luxembourg, but also all around the world. Uh, it allows you to meet people from very different cultures who are all interested in one product, which is wine. And, and wine, as such, is an incredible catalyst for social cohesion. You know, so it's you, you rarely drink uh, on your own because you're sad. Well, it happens, but uh, it shouldn't be, you know, the majority of times. Usually, it's, you share a bottle of wine with friends. And, and or, or people you want to share it with, and then you have good moments, and you remember what you had and 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 what you uh, what you lived that day. So that that is something I think is absolutely exceptional in my field of work. Well, excellent. On this uh, happy note, uh, Anton, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to uh, to chat to me today and and walk me through uh, the exciting story of Bernard Massard and of course the joy of of, of drinking it. So uh, <laughs> certainly, I'm looking forward to having you back on the show, and and yeah, all the best with the promotion of your products. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Luxembourg's leading business podcast. If you're listening to our show on Apple Podcasts, please rate our programme using the five-star scale and leave us a review. Or if you're tuning into Spotify, it takes just a few seconds to give us a rating on the overview page of our show. You can also email us with your feedback or suggestions at info at luxunplugged.com. Mm-hmm.